वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक द सिंट टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द नेबर्स एंड नेबरहुड्स विल थिंक अबाउट द नोशन ऑफ नेबरहुड्स एंड आस्क वॉट क्रिएट्स एंड इन्फ्लुएंसेज दैम इन वेरियस कॉन्टेक्सट्स वॉट एग्जैक्टली इज अ नेबरहुड how can neighbors be conceptualized in random processes with known or unknown probabilities can linguistic meaning be spatially organized can chess positions or games be said to be neighbors of each other is intersection or interaction of neighborhoods crucial for the world to hang together as one can an individual decide and make a new word into a language and what is the future of a conceptual understanding of neighbors we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr emmanuel culiers he is a computational psycholinguist and is from tilburg university in the netherlands Professor Naveen Singhi he retired as a senior professor from TIFR Mumbai his research interest is in the area of discrete mathematics and professor M Vidya Sagar he trained in electrical engineering and has worked in a variety of areas including control theory and machine learning he is currently a distinguished professor at IIT Hyderabad So uh, Emmanuel why don't we set the ball rolling with you um before we go in other directions um what does uh, neighborhood mean to you and you know as a as a linguist can words or sentences or languages be said to be neighbors of each other and how how rough is that uh, notion is it analogical is it real i mean is this a concrete enough notion how would you think about it what what is what is a neighbor what is neighborhood as far as you're concerned yeah so first i, I as a child i had this uh, episode that i remember um where i was very adamant that only the people right next door were my neighbors two houses away those were not formally neighbors anymore so if you take that um concept of neighbor and you basically say neighbors are only those things which are the closest possible then you can easily define neighbors because if you have a uh, distance to something right then you can say whatever is closest to it that's uh so a, they are single neighbor. neighbors yeah. I mean, yeah so when you look at language the notion of of a uh, uh, distance is pervasive uh, throughout uh the entire structure so linguists have have uh, looked at measuring uh, every aspect of language from uh the very uh, small to the very large and if you start with words and when you say very small you go all the way to phonemes pho- and... phonemes and even smaller uh, than that so uh the, you have building blocks uh of uh, of phonemes and very often uh they are um uh they are distinguished uh along three dimensions mm-hmm. uh, and that would be the manner uh what is done to the air when it flows out and the place of articulation what is your mouth doing where are the articulators in in which position and the voice are you adding voice to it or not and those make neighbors right so if you have the uh letter f or the phoneme f and you add voice to it so its nearest neighbor in a sense would be v right you add voice to it and it becomes something else and there's a very interesting so uh, at its most yeah. basic level you would think of the organization uh phonologically from sound onwards yeah hmm. and it it's uh, actually the, the the idea that uh, of of neighbors or pairs of of words is essential to discovering in language formally what constitutes a uh, phoneme or not right mm-hmm. so if you have uh, the words jar and char in english you have the sounds j and ch and because 
we have those two which differ on only one phoneme, we consider in English j and ch different phonemes. Right. But um, in other languages, you would have ch and ch as different phonemes. Right. You can't hear it, probably. Right. In Serbian, these are uh, these are different. Uh, and uh, you would have them, for instance, in chat and much. But there is no pair of words, no neighbors, that are different on just the ch, ch. So, so Emmanuel, just so that one gets it right, so even so, the whole idea of neighborhood there is that even the physiological articulation of it, where it gets produced from in our yeah. in our vocal tract and vocal cord and in our mouths and so on. So even those are neighbors. So the sound is produced from neighboring locations or the precise locations, oh, yeah, but just yeah. the lo- you, location changed and so on. Yeah, that's you, the you, idea. You could definitely call those things uh, neighbors because they differ on only one very small feature yeah and uh, we'll make this more complex as we go and we'll come back to this but you you go from these sounds to phonemes all the way to where do you stop like do you keep going i i, I do don't you go all the way to I, meaning I, of course you, you 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 don't stop because uh, uh languages themselves uh have uh distances uh, from each other right. so you could say for instance when you organize languages as a tree uh, according to all kinds of principles you can say that uh Languages such as Dutch and German are uh, neighbors, right? right? Or French and Spanish are uh, neighboring languages. And again, uh, to link this back to what you've just spoken about, this would go back to the way articulation of many of those words. So they would sound similar, right? It's very unlikely for languages to be neighbors and for them to sound different. Sound. So, exactly. So the procedure is that you have a list of words with a particular meaning. Mm-hmm. you uh, write down how those words are uh, expressed in the different languages, and then you calculate how close those are to each other. So in, in English, uh, cat, and in French, chat, for instance, in, in, uh, in uh, Spanish, gato. Uh, if you have a bunch of those words for different languages, you can compute the similarity between languages. So actually you don't need the entire language corpora to do this. You can do this with literally two, three hundred words and oh, yeah. figure out what is a neighbor of what. Right? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's the idea. And, 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 and you would need uh, <laughs> to do that with words that are... that are uh, Commonly used. Uh, not commonly used, but that are actually a uh, heritage uh, of that language. Because if you would do that with a corpus, you would mingle everything. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Hindi could have acquired a word from Portuguese and and so on. You mean it in yeah, that sense? And 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 definitely did. It so, did. <laughs> so, yeah, right. you would get into trouble uh, uh, there. Yeah. And just just one question that uh, in this way, do you also try to go to the root languages? Are there some root languages by neighbors? That's the whole idea. Of proto languages, right? Yeah, Which yeah, is a little proto. confusing. So, I, yeah, definitely. So, I, I this uh, kind of reasoning. Uh, was used to make language trees, right? Where yeah. Indo-European is, uh, for yeah. instance, one uh, specific branch and Sanskrit is uh, very well, much at, at the, yeah. the top of that uh, branch and, and you branch out in more recent um, uh, creations, let's say, yeah. language creations which come from language communities, uh, communities of neighboring speakers, right? They make yeah. new languages, that's... Yeah, That's almost like uh, Darwin's uh, theory gives you tree of life. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What do these mean to you, Sagar? Because, you know, we have touched upon the notion of tree and branching and, you know, you maybe these have different resonances for you. How does this link to the idea of neighborhood as far as you're concerned? And, and you know, I know there are Markovian processes and this, that, but um, how do, what comes to mind? Well, it's not so much a Markovian process, it's more what uh, the probability people would call a branching process. Right. You start with some root, then you divide into branches and sub-branches, and then the distance would be how many levels you have to go up before you find a common ancestor. Right. Um, so in in that, there is no notion of probability, it's just counting. Uh, and I got the impression from a manual that it is also much more the uh, the notion of the uh, the proximity rather than the any likelihood of making this transformation. Right. Uh, but I, I did have a question for Emmanuel, if he doesn't mind. 
So you're talking about measuring the proximity from one language to, or from one word in a language to a comparable word in a different language. Uh, can you think about neighborliness of authors in the same language? So for example, can your methods on computational uh, psycholinguistics used to settle controversies whether Christopher Marlowe really wrote William Shakespeare's plays or not. I'm, I'm using that as a slightly frivolous example. But for instance, if somebody says that this famous Duke didn't really write any of these things, they were actually ghostwritten by this penniless author. Can you actually settle that? And when you try to settle them, is there a notion of probability in the sense that I would use it. Now, that means you're 87% sure that these plays were written by this author. That kind of question possible to address at all? Yeah, there, there's a whole field dedicated to that. Really so interesting. A, Which is, uh, what would that field be called? Digital stylometry. Uh, or, or authorship uh, attribution. Okay. So digital authorship attribution so is. So you could look at two 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 works and try and identify without knowing the authors to begin with whether they're likely to have come from the same author. Yes, I mean, given uh, a you could compute the likelihood, right? Uh, and there would be a confidence interval which could be rather large. Right. And of course, to make uh, anything certain, you would look uh, need to look at a. Uh, a very large background corpus, and that's the the problem sometimes. What are you going to compare it with, right? Yeah, so you need what, some kind of a training set or whatever. Some, you need something. some kind of a training set, and putting that together is not always uh, the easiest thing to do. But authors uh, are often said to have idiosyncratic ways of writing, using pronouns, uh, for instance, using particular constructions. And then at some point it can become rather likely that uh, a certain work is uh, is written by a, a, a similar author. And but obviously styles are not fixed and so on, and these things can also change. They're not that's, fixed. That's another and, matter. And and obviously you can also write as somebody, right? There's a yearly Hemingway competition, of course, where you course. where people try to 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 write sh- short that's stories. Why, that's that, why so, I think uh, yeah. Saga spoke about ghost authors, and ghost authors know precisely what they're supposed to copy. <laughs> yeah. So that's well, why they're good at it. So then, then let me tell you a rather amusing incident. This is apparently a true story. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the 40s, the Times, which is the British newspaper, they decided to sponsor a contest. Uh, for someone who can best imitate the style of Graham Greene. <laughs> and of course, and Graham Greene came third or fourth or something. Oh, no, he got honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So so going back to this, Sagar, so what is neighborhood for you? Um, what What is a neighbor for you? And And, you know, when you talk of branching and transition probabilities and so on, are they at the same point in time or they are more dynamic kind of trees and the, the root is at time t equal to zero and it progresses in time, what happens? How does one think about it conceptually? Oh, I mean, both are possible. Right. Uh, if everything is happening at the same time, you'd call it a synchronous process mm. and everything is evolving at its own pace. This would be called asynchronous. Right. Um, but states can be said to be neighbors of each other in processes. So yes. you could say that this state is a neighbor of this state. Yes. And, and how does one establish that? Well, uh, this is going back to Emmanuel's earlier point. I think most people who work in uh, Markov processes, for example, would consider a state to be a neighbor if it is truly adjacent, meaning that you can go from here to there in one hop, irrespective of the But what does it mean for a state to go from one to another in one hop, which means that you just go back one step and take the other branch? Essentially that, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not that simple, and that's the reason I'm provoking you. Well... I don't know. I can't think of a really good example right off the bat. Sure. So um, suppose you happen to be at a particular address. Okay. You heard this expression of the random walk. Yeah. Okay. So we'll make life really simple by making it a one-dimensional random walk. Okay. So you are here now at a particular address. So you come out of the house and you can either turn right or turn left. That's all you can do. And the probability of your turning right and turning left need not be equal. But the idea is that after you have taken one step, you're only at your neighbor's house in the sense that 
Emmanuel described it earlier. You cannot suddenly jump from your current house to the house, three houses away, without going through the intermediate states. Right. And in that context, the neighborliness is adjacency. Right. So, uh, as Naveen would agree, this would be called in the graph theory context, is the adjacent state. Or the so adjacent could, vertex of the graph. So, Naveen, you could literally des- decide that, you know, I'm going to include two hops in the neighborhood and three hops in the neighborhood and so on. Right. Uh, then so, it will change. So, but, you can but, think of another graph. But is neighborhood yeah. simply a matter of definition? Or like, do you just keep changing the number of hops and everything gets included uh, in the neighborhood? Not just definition. Also, your vision, what do you want to do? Like in uh, Marco chain also, suppose you want to have study all states up to n steps. Mm-hmm. Then you will describe neighbor as n steps. And also, you, like in Marco chain, it's not easy to go back. So it is com- non-commutative. So you will have previous state. But if you want to decide what was the previous state, you cannot easily decide. <laughs> yeah. What What does that mean? Hmm? What does that mean that See, you cannot decide what the previous step was? Of course, you know what the previous step was. No, but which step? Are you took? saying that the probabilities are still indeterminate? Is that the idea? No, no. For example, the the physics people will call this the arrow of time. Right. Right. So, in other words, if if I showed you a very basic example, if I showed you a movie, and if I showed you the same movie running backwards. Your instinct is say, wait a minute, there's something is wrong with this. Of course. With it is going in the wrong direction. So that is sometimes called the arrow of time. And what Naveen is saying is that many Markov processes, though by no means all, they have a natural direction of time. And if you take the trajectory and we reverse it, which is basically just like running the reel of a film backwards you would sense that something is wrong. So what are Markov processes I mean, in, in nature or what one knows around us? Um, are you talking about the mathematical definition or what? No, no, I'm not, not the definition. What 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 What's an instance of a Markov process? Well, so for example... So that one tries to grapple with this idea of what a neighborhood is because... But well, even, even mathematically, if you describe it, uh, overall it may not be very difficult not to very see. Difficult. Right? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so when the next state... It does not depend on the previous... Yeah, yeah. I think one gets the idea yeah. of it being free from yeah. the past and so on, which is fine. Yeah. It's not, that well, practically describes... Future does right? not past-dependent. Well, yeah. so, so it's, it's not past-dependent how you got to your previous... I mean, classic example would be, suppose I toss a coin, okay? Sure. And if it comes out heads, I give you 10 rupees. If it comes out tails, you give me 10 rupees. Okay. So you keep track of your winnings over time. Sure. Okay. So let's say that after we have played this game... X number of times, you are 50 rupees ahead. So now you want to calculate what is the what are the next possible states. Well, the, in the next possible state, you will either be 60 rupees ahead or you will be 40 rupees ahead. Those are the only two things that can happen. Yes. Because either you win 10 rupees or you lose 10 rupees. Yeah. So 50 rupees is not an adjacent state because there's no way to get there. Yeah. Now you can get to 50 rupees in two hops. Yeah. Either a head follow By going to 40 and then earning 10 again. Yes. And then the other important thing is, it doesn't matter how many times you've played the game till that point. And it doesn't matter what trajectory you took to get to the winnings being It's only the transition probabilities at that point in time that matters. That's right. That's the only thing that matters. And then, uh, as Naveen so, was you know, the whole idea of memorylessness, right, in a way. It's, it's not entirely correct to call it memoryless. Much more accurate would be one-step memory. Of course. Only a, tr- the... a truly memoryless process is actually tossing the coin. Right. Because what comes this time has nothing to do with what happened last time. That is a truly memoryless process. So a Markov process would have one-step memory. And as Naveen was pointing out, you can also have multi-step Markov processes where it remembers for, say, K steps. K can be 2, 3, 20, whatever, and beyond that it doesn't matter. And Naveen, is any of this uh, transferable to graphs from a graph theory perspective? Uh, Actually, just a little while ago, me and uh, Manal, we were talking about that practically any problem in the world, (laughs) you can change to the graphs. Mm-hmm. Just to give you an example, suppose I want to draw a picture of what is the color of each point in the universe. 
it will look impossible generally to even make a vision about it. Graph theorists will have no problem. No. They will have a set of colors and set of points of universe. <laughs> and you join when this color is this point. And they study it. And often it is very useful to forget everything else. Just remember this. Sorry, how does that work? So you, you have so a you get focused. You get focused on some particular aspect which you are doing. Not not all sort of problems. No. Yeah. And uh, does the, and I think uh, Sagar has spoken, given a sense of direction, uh, directed and, and non-directed graphs are different, obviously. So there could be a situation in which A is the neighbor of B, but B is it's not the not neighbor. Not neighbor, yeah, that's very common, yeah. And is yeah. that is that only in the abstract, or there's a way in yeah. which one but could also, think of that in the more real Also, context? one should remember that directed is a bit richer. Mm-hmm. So what you does can that mean? forget the direction and you have a non-directed graph. Of course. Yeah. But yeah. is there, I mean, are there, are there directed graphs around us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just look oh, on yeah, the streets yeah. of Mumbai. And yeah. If, if there's a one-way street, you can go from here to there in one step. Yeah. But you can't go from there to here unless you go a long way around. So this is a, I mean, if you look at Google Maps, which is trying to tell you how to get from where you are now to where you want to go, it has to take the directedness of the, the traffic flow. Of course. So that is why when you click on the car icon in Google Maps, you get a completely different path. Than Compared when to the walk the icon. Foot. Yeah, exactly. When you click on the walk icon, those are pretty much undirected graphs. So. And Naveen, going to the the geometer or the projective geometry person in you, the does the notion of neighborhood change depending on the type of space one is talking about? Because of course, yeah. you know, whether one talks of so, Google Maps yeah. or whatever, I yeah, think right. these somewhat yeah. more simplistic notions, it's a Euclidean kind of world. Uh, uh, does it? Does it? Does the notion itself change? Uh, if, if one is talking yeah, about so just kind of space? the idea of psychological idea of neighbor is that you are nearby. That is overall maintained. But, but see, mathematics is very formal language subject. So in each setup, you have to formally describe what is a neighborhood. So like in a graph theory language, you'll have points and there some of them are joined by a line. So then you describe a neighbor. If some point is joined to another one, then you say they are adjacent, as uh, Sagar said. And then you define neighborhood according to that adjacent relationship. While in uh, Euclidean space, you think of points or not. There is nothing like adjacent points. Right. Between any two points, there is another point always. Right. So there you think of small ball. Small All ball. the points which are around this point in the small ball, they are called neighbor. And now this ball, if you want, you could make it very... So in a way, the neighborhood big. is three-dimensional in the Euclidean space? Is that is that the it idea? It depends on the dimension of Euclidean space. It could be even n-dimensional or infinite of dimensional. Of course. Yeah. Uh, what about non-Euclidean spaces? How does one how does one get one's head around that? Uh, again, it depends on the context in which you are studying. So you can pick uh, any context you like. Uh, the whole idea is to try and grapple. So, for example, uh, projective spaces mm-hmm. are non-Euclidean. Now, if you are studying over real numbers, you could have a notion just like Euclidean space. You can think of the projective space. If you remove certain aspect, it becomes Euclidean space. So neighborhood, you mean you remove the infinities? Yeah, so neighborhood for every point will be almost similar to Euclidean neighborhood. On the other hand, if you take finite projective space mm-hmm. over a finite field, then it doesn't make much sense to say at all ball or anything. There is no distance there. So then you define actually a graph between points and lines and planes that a point is on the line, that is a graph. And now you'll study neighborhood in that graph. So if a point is on a line, you join these two. So could you say that a graph is like kind of a discrete space and yeah. uh, something with a continuous metric is a continuous space? I was just thinking, right? So when you have uh, my house and my neighbor's house, uh, that's discrete, right? Yeah. But somebody can build a house in between those and then that person becomes my neighbor. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So there is always a possibility in a real space in a real space that somebody can become inside neighbor while yeah. in discrete 
ंगस्ट if he can convert the problem to something which mathematicians are studying then they will feel comfortable okay now i have come to a language in which a lot of work has been done and i'll use it so sagar so, when you when if, if you grapple with questions of this nature do you worry about whether things are discrete or continuous at all so these markov processes of course on a sheet of paper there are individual milestones and you go from one to another um is it as straightforward as that and are there situations where you struggle with this discrete no, continuity no, no, business no not at all i mean you can have discrete markov processes you can also have markov processes on continuous space and continuous time both can happen right the applications will be very different uh but i think what navin says is absolutely right that uh mathematicians often are um, more driven by the technique they're interested in what all can we do with this method in a mathematical setting so when somebody from an engineering background like me comes upon a branch of mathematics often times i go to that particular branch of mathematics because i have a problem in mind right sometimes people like me do completely undirected reading for intellectual satisfaction but most of the time i would say we are under some uh not pressure exactly but a motivation to do something that that's practically useful but yes we can do discrete markov time we can also do continuous time continuous space markov processes um so the idea of neighbors again um is, does does that does that start becoming gray in, yeah, well, in, in, yes yeah definitely because you see when you when you have a discrete time discrete state situation uh it makes perfect sense to you talk you can define a neighborhood by saying you know one hops and two hops and one so hop on one hop and two hops well first of all the neighbor should really be the adjacency of if you have a discrete state and then you start talking about things like can you get there from here right and then if the answer the meaning is there really a path of transition that will get you from where you are now to where you want to go and if these are all probabilistic transitions then you start asking the questions on average how many transitions do i need to get there then you can say something about the system but not something about a specific is that your idea yeah so for example uh, there is something called the stopping time problem in markov processes now you can t- talk about stopping times in uh, uh, in uh, continuous time processes as well but becomes a lot more messy mm. because the equations that you need to solve are a lot more complicated Mm. so it just gets very elevated so so suppose you think about a game so take a game like 21 you you keep drawing cards right right and then if you cross 21 you lose uh, if i understand the game correctly and if you hit 21 exactly then you win so, so suppose you ask a very very basic question what is the length of the average game right you can answer that question Yeah. because it's discrete i mean i draw a card then the house draws a card then i draw a card yeah. and eventually one of us will go over 21 yeah now in in the case of um, continuous continuous uh, yeah the a very natural application would be what we were discussing earlier this mathematical finance okay suppose you think of a stock price as evolving continuously okay and suppose you bought a stock at which is today worth 100 dollar 100 rupees let us say and uh, your option has a strike price of 110 rupees so you would like to know how many days do you need to wait before the stock will eventually hit 110 rupees that would be an example of a a continuous time right. markov process right typically the level of mathematical sophistication needed to uh, solve continuous time problems is much higher but 
Is the mathematics of, itself different? Like, yes. do, you, do you end up using different... different yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Kind of, I know there's it discrete be, maths and so it on. It may be but different, but often it does happen that the vision which comes from the continuous, because space which we look is continuous. No? Right. We think of at least continuous. So it is may discrete, not be continuous. Is discrete, so vision are these discrete mathematics tools an approximation of the continuous? No, no. They're no, not. They, they're, a lot of things are their own. A lot of times even problems which are in continuous... They are very different. Like a lot of things might look infinite that, okay, I can solve it. Right. But even the best computer at today's time, one can see that it cannot solve it. So even the what must be problem is also very different. So, so but I was, uh, I was going to ask you, isn't it true that engineers, many electrical engineers especially, they might think of control theory also more like mathematics. That oh, it is. It is very right? mathematical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, when they come to it, they okay, they can, they are comfortable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think Naveen yeah. is pulling control you into this. Control are very comfortable <laughs> with mathematics. <laughs> yeah, and I think that this is um, almost like a prerequisite, in the sense that if you are afraid of mathematics, then do something else. <laughs> Don't try to do control, control theory because yeah. you want to work. I think what is interesting, Emmanuel, as as we hear both Naveen and Sagar talk about this, is that there seems to be an element of evolution in time and going from one to another in directedness and so on. But, you know, for example, if in things of language, and, you know, it's not talking of evolution of language so much, but if you say that this word is close to this word and adjacencies, neighbors and so on, there is no sense of directedness. So is there, can one even ask or can one say that, is it possible that any two words are non-neighbors? They are not neighbors of each other. Does that make, make any sense at all? Or any two words are neighbors of each other is just that they happen to be really far away. You know what I mean? So if you if you just pick a language and you pick any two words, you could say that, you know, I think... Oh, yeah. No, I, you know I, what I, I mean? Think, yeah, of course. But the, the, the we, we don't have that problem uh, that there are many things which can insert themselves between two different... Um, uh, words for instance right so uh, if you have a minimal pair mm -hmm. of words so words that have only one phoneme difference they will be neighbors they can have other neighbors but they will remain neighbors forever they will not cease to be neighbors just they will because not others. cease to be neighbors right but it's definitely true that you can have very uh, in, in in any continuous space you can have things which are very very distant but which are still each other's closest neighbor so that's uh, that's definitely possible. But, but any two words in one language, if one, if one visualizes language mm -hmm. as some kind of a mathematical object, some yeah. kind of a manifold, if you know what I mean, does it close upon itself? Do all the words lie on one surface, if you know what I mean? I mean, are they all... Are uh, they all... We would call it reachable apart? in the sense that reachable, you can... You yeah. can See, we have to make a distinction between adjacency, which is what I would call as neighbor, and reachable, which means you can get there eventually. Yeah. And I think... Even that, if it takes super long time or infinite time. Infinite yeah. time would not be a part of a reachability criterion. In control theory, yes. I mean, we do it often worry about asymptotics, as in mathematics. Yeah. What happens if you wait sufficiently long? I do have a question for Emmanuel, which is very different. Remember, this coming from a complete amateur, so please uh, <laughs> uh, keep that in mind, okay? My question is about the evolution of languages versus the evolution of scripts. Now, if you look at the Indic languages, what would strike anybody, I think, is the languages evolve more slowly and the scripts evolve really fast. So, for example, I can read a 3,000-year-old Sanskrit text and understand it without a whole lot of difficulty. But I cannot read a 1,000-year-old stone tablet in the same language, Telugu, and maybe I'll pick up 15-20% of the characters. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I looked at some ancient Greek stone carving, and I was astonished that the characters look extremely modern. They have not changed at all. So is there any similar notion of evolution of scripts? Uh, is there a scientific subject like that? Oh, for, yeah. There, there are definitely people who uh, who are interested in in, uh, in evolution of scripts. And it's, I think, pretty well documented. When it goes far back, it becomes archaeology, uh, basically. Then do these people have a good explanation as to why... 
in India, scripts evolve very quickly, but not languages. And in Europe, it seems to be the opposite way. So you mean scripts? Uh, you have a different script for the same language. Yeah. yeah. And it changes uh, very rapidly. Very rapidly. Well, there could be many non-linguistic yeah. kind of reasons so for something like that. What I what I would think yeah, is 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 that uh, at some point there is a uh, uh, there could influence. Be contact with with and and one good example is is Roman numerals being uh, um, substituted by what people call Arabic numerals, but yeah, are one, two, really... Yeah, and so on. Uh, you don't reuse... I mean, you, you do your yeah. mathematics with one, two, three. You don't do them with uh, the Roman numerals of one and X and X1 and so on. But that's... Right. So well, I, some of these... I mean, I think yeah. we're going a little bit far away from the idea of neighborhoods, but yeah... Can I, I mean, just this, say something about this? So yes. this is... The, the nice thing is language is language, right? But script is technology. Scripts yeah. are technologies to uh, transmit languages. And uh, a change of script is a technological innovation, and that's uh, uh, that distinguishes it from uh, from what you would call natural spoken or signed language. I think what but is interesting, uh, Emmanuel, uh, is just, yeah. uh, just to extend this because it is interesting. I think, uh, for example, the Sanskrit script it has practically remained static. I, I I think what what you have in Sanskrit is uh, that it's a a language that is uh, studied. So its 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 function mostly is a uh, uh, it's not evolving, right? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. It's, yeah, it's something exactly. that is yeah. set. Yeah. And and something it's, that it's is more studied. like a code. Yeah. So it has no. Um, I I I would say. It doesn't need to evolve. There's there's no purpose for it to evolve because it is something that is studied, like Latin. Latin evolved in the Middle Ages into other languages, but the Latin we study is the Latin we study and remains the Latin we study. It's a scholar, it's a scholarly language. Yeah, but same thing in other Indian languages which are evolving. Mm-hmm. This structure has remained. The structure of that these are the basic sounds. So in a way, they are neighbors in the sense that that all these sounds have, have something on the back which are all neighbors. The reason why I brought up the scripts, I was trying to help you by talking about neighbors. For example, you can say that Gujarati and Devanagari are neighbor scripts. Kannada and Telugu are neighbor scripts, right? Mm. So th- th- there is also some notion of neighborhood there. Uh, but uh, it was interesting to me that there is a, a subject. But I really like this uh, saying: "The script is the technology of a language." I think. Yeah, yeah, I also uh, like that. That deserves yeah. to be <laughs> highlighted. I think. So when when we and so Emmanuel, you've spoken about language in use, right? I think you're using a more Wittgensteinian kind of notion. But I mean, all the four of us here, we use English in some shape or form, but. If we, you know, the words we use and how frequently they occur and so on and how close and far they are from each other, that vector space or whatever else you call it is different, right? It's not totally different from each other, but they're different. I mean, the frequency of words we use, there's a lot of our own history that goes into it. So there is no one language. So there is, you know what I mean? So it's not as though English has a certain map. All of us have our own maps and that changes and it interacts with each other. Is that is that accurate? Of course, that's accurate. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 definitely. So uh, uh, we we all uh, uh, what we know about language, and that's language for us. Is 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 what we know, what we have experienced is different uh, for all of us. And I like to think of uh, language as a really big graph, right, in which the uh, nodes are uh, actors. Those are the people who use the language, but they can also be uh, things which transmit language without ever changing. Right. A book, for instance, a Sanskrit text. It is uh, transmitted to other actors. That's the, it's, a, it's a directed graph in, in, in that sense. And uh, the node changes because of that. So it's a very uh, large uh, graph, and there are transactions occurring between each 
uh, of those uh, uh, nodes in the, in 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 and would in it consequently graph. mean that if there are words that are less frequently used, there's likely to be a higher variance in 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 oh absolutely the meaning and so on yeah. because it's very unlikely we differ in yeah. meanings of the most commonly used words. Yeah. But so uh, what I I'll try to get to that. Sure. Uh, uh, and what's interesting is, is that in any uh, transaction that's occurring. We're neighbors of each other. I'm talking to you now, right? And that means that we are neighbors, right? Right. Um, another way of 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 looking at it is that although we may have never had any transaction with each other, our experience of language is actually very similar because we've read a lot of the same material, yeah, and we are very close to each other. And that is one of the reasons, I think, why we are able to talk uh, easily to Even each other. Even though we have not interacted with each other specifically as yeah. individuals before. We, we can be good neighbors now because we are um, in a system where we've had a lot of the same influences. right? And so we, we have a shared experience. This probably, uh, Saga, this probably resonates a little bit with the learning theory person in you, right? Because I think the way in which a lot of us have gotten around to, let's call it learning the language or whatever, is that it's, it's obviously similar and different in many ways, but it's similar in many, 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 many ways because we're able to use the same the, the same grammar, the same rules and so on. Well, I think the question is whether you think of a human being as a trained neural network or not. What's uh, the answer? What is your gut on this? Well, it depends on what aspect of the human being you're looking at, right? If you take, Let's say this language-using machine. Well, language-using machine is also not sufficiently precise. Right. What I mean by that is if uh, Naveen and I are giving a mathematical lecture, if we gave the same lecture 10 years apart and somebody were to videotape it, you would find that we probably are using exactly the same words, same gesture, not consciously because that's the way in which you have thought about it. Right. On the other hand, if you're talking about politics, let's say, obviously over a five-year period, maybe even a one-year period, we change. Now, the thing is, in all these cases, we are a function of our experience. So the... the or the training, if you want to use the neural network terminology. And so the, the training takes you on a particular path, and then you wind up in a particular endpoint. Uh, and the biggest difficulty with trying to apply all these machine learning type methods to human type situations is that two different individuals exposed to the exactly the same training sequences can wind up in radically different uh, terminal states. You think so? Oh, definitely. I mean, you see it all around you, right? What would, yeah. what would that mean in the language context? Well, I think the language context is, why do two people reading the same news item or watching the same TV news item interpret it so differently? Because right. you're only going one state back. Beg your pardon? Because you're only going one state back. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think that... Yeah. Uh, but the notion of a neighbor from the standpoint of adjacency is uh, somewhat limited. This is what all this discussion is showing. And you see, whenever we use mathematical models in engineering, mm -hmm. there is always a trade-off between what I call the realism and what I call the tractability. Right. What I mean by that is, as an engineer, we have a particular problem we want to solve. So then we look for a mathematical model, okay? Then we try to solve the mathematical problem. The more realistic you make the mathematical model, the harder it becomes to solve the problem. <laughs> so you wind up making some compromises. And that compromise is, the, to my mind, the distinguishing feature between an engineer and a mathematician. So as, as uh, um, he was saying earlier, uh, the, the question is, um, what distinguishes an engineer from a mathematician? It, the type of training we go through is probably not a whole lot different, but the uses to which we put the training is very different. I think the question, let's say, if we go back to the language context, if you don't mind, no, Sandra, no, no. is that the 
let's say there's a language called English. Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, it's not super well defined. Uh, somebody like Naveen would cringe at it because it's not one entity. But all of us, as Emmanuel has pointed out, we somehow make do with it and we are able to understand each other. Now, there must be something robust about that learning process that even though both of both you and I deploy it in different ways and we may have different inflections and we have different word pairs that we use and so on, we're able to understand each other. Would that be... Would that be uh, in, yes. in this context, you were saying that I predict, probably he can say more. Sure. That up till now, if suppose I go to Europe and non-English non speaking, method was that I will try to learn one of the languages, say French or Dutch or... And use uh, that as a base to yeah. understand the others. See, now, actually going to a country has also reduced with this internet and so on. Sure. There are automatic translation via this language learning, etc. Sure. So, maybe it might reduce now this type of need and style will change. So, a person, two persons who don't know language at all, but with the proper machine, they might be neighbors, <laughs> right? It, and it will. I think this type of thing will increase in the future. No, what do you feel? <laughs> it, it might change the whole idea of language itself, right? Um, yes, I, I I think at 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 some point it it might. Uh, you you asked a question about meaning. Yeah. Earlier, and how uh, perhaps we can be similar to each other uh, because uh, of a similar learning environment, although we've never met each other. Uh, but also how uh, words can be similar to each other, not in sound, but in meaning, right? Right. So one way of, 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 of looking uh, at that uh, problem of meaning is that there is no such thing as meaning in language. And that goes back to Wittgenstein's uh, uh, classical thought experiment uh, when uh, uh, you ask people to define what a game is and I can ask you for a definition of a game uh, and Sagar talked earlier about 21 and we can define a game and then we will have another game and we will need to broaden that definition and we will need to change that definition again and again and again. And his point is not that it's difficult to make a definition of the, something. Which is the realism and tractability point that Sagar was making a little while ago. I think the more formally and strictly you want to define something. The, so your point is that you may not, you do not need to be able to define something to be able to use it perfectly. Exactly. Well. So, so. We, we've been using game all along without ever having been given a definition. Right. And that is how we use language, right? We are, uh, what we know about language is uh, a product of our environment, mm -hmm. basically, what we've been exposed to. And you can model that quite simply by taking a corpus, uh, and uh, that's just a bunch of uh, uh, texts, and looking at co-occurrences, uh, which words occur with, with which other words, or in which context do they co-occur in the words uh, are uh, rows and other words are columns and you start simply counting uh, what happens uh, one and you get uh, vectors mathematical vectors that are frequencies or that could even be results of a uh, a uh, neural network uh, representing things on a on a hidden layer for instance words are vectors how robust is that does it work that is that is very i i it it's, it works very well so you get completely uh, abstract representations of words which tell you something about the history of those words in connection to other words, right? And you could represent uh, people like that. So can one introduce a word into a language if one wanted to? Uh, and it, that's interesting. I, I don't think it's directly connected to that. But the answer to, to, to that would be yes, and it needs to have two conditions. Mm -hmm. You would need to be somebody who has a lot of neighbors, right? So who is very popular in some way or another. It might be that you're a completely secluded person, but you write an article right. that is read by many people. And there's a space for that word. There's a use for that word. Then it will be accepted, right? And then it will spread. But if you, uh, as, you know, uh, uh, some hubris... Uh, exercise, try to say, look, I invent this word, 
without specific meaning. I, I, I invent some history for it and I'm going to tell it to my few friends and, and expect them to uh, spread it along. It will fail miserably. So there was a fiat saying, you know, from now on the word cat shall be called dodo. <laughs> it, it's it's very difficult to implement something like that. Just it, it, it wouldn't work. It, yeah. Well, uh, I've, I've just Esp- want... Esperanto is example. Esperanto yeah. was trying to create an artificial language. It died down after. So yeah. It, I, I, yeah. I think they, you have Esperanto speakers, but you need to be dedicated yeah. to do to, that. And to from do that, yeah. from the moment you have transactions, mm. from the moment you have something, from the moment language has a value, you can do that and. The more people you can interact with, the more value it has. It you know. I was going to say just uh, about this business of introducing uh, new words. Right. Of course, the, the level of influence you have is very important. But also perhaps the perceived need for such a word. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you a crude example. So you're saying the need has to precede the Th- that's what I was invention. To, that's what I was leading up to. Take the word prostitute. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think we all had a feeling that there is this concept we just didn't have the right so word. So the concept yeah. comes before the word. You know? I don't I don't know who coined this word. Is it used only in India? No, 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 no. This word? Prostitute. Prostitute? You no. I, I you know I I may have heard it and this is the really interesting thing going back to meaning. If I've only heard it once, you I only had right? one context and yeah. so I didn't have its meaning. Yeah. Now I hear it in another context. I'll have examples, and I'll slowly build up its meaning. How am I going to do that? By knowing the the context, the context, and in which use. the words occur, the people, it's who use it, etc. And it has to be a somewhat robust word, which goes in slightly differing context. If it's highly specific, then it remains a technical word. Doesn't come into daily currency. Need also comes in, like prostitute. Once you know. You'll try to use it. Like, in a way, you were saying vectors. I want to know what it is. Uh, yeah, no, you were oh, saying vectors. Oh, <laughs> Can somebody press, give me an example? Oh, press, no, prostitute is just a combination of press and prostitute. Okay. So, so meaning is clear, right? Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, fine. Yeah. It's yeah. A, what yeah. we call a portmanteau. Portmanteau. Yeah. 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 And where you were saying vectors, yeah. you use it because you see the behind vector, there are vector spaces, there is mathematics. Yeah. So you feel happy, okay, in language I can see vectors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean the use of the word vectors is a little faulty here? Is that no, is no, that the no, idea? no, it is useful, no, because see, you want to see in something where you can use some other tools. That's right. what it is doing, no? Right. Yeah. Right, right. Can 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 the chess games be thought of as being neighbors of each other? Two different games. Can one say that this game is a neighbor of this game? So that how does one how does one do it rigorously? I'm not a chess player. Sure. So I tried to educate myself by watching a few chess channels. And I think <laughs> so with that caveat, so here is the point. Um they can be neighbors in the sense of uh, adjacency. In other words, if there's a board position and a move is made by one of the players whose turn it is, the new board position can be thought of as a neighbor of the old board position. But there's an interesting question which we talked about earlier, that is, is it possible for two chess board positions to look very similar but not be neighbors at all? Yeah. And I think the answer... It shouldn't be possible to go from one to another. Well, no, no. Not just in that sense. No, 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 you can go from one to the other. But so, to the extent that I understand chess based on my watching a few chess channels, you can take a rook or a bishop and move to one adjacent square. So in a strictly mathematical sense, they're neighbors, meaning you can go from this board position to that board position. But the subsequent evolution of the game, so suppose what does the opponent do when he says this board position? So actually that move would never be made. So in language use... Well, no, not even that. It's a question of how close are the two board positions in terms of the succeeding evolution of the game. In that sense, they might not be neighbors at all. Whether they're neighbors as as strategy. As As strategies, as as outcomes. And so in other words, what, what I understand the chess players do is 
uh, they used to be apparently very intuitive. Now they ha- have their head crammed full of all these variations, <laughs> and they try to remember. Oh, in uh, you know such and such a tournament, such and Bobby such a Fisher game. Did this. You know, A versus B. They played this, and then he made this move, and he went down crashing. So they try to remember all this stuff, and uh, so that's what I meant by saying that one simple change in the board position, which could be adjacent in the sense of a legal move may completely change the subsequent evolution of the game. So what this means is, as a controls person now, not, not a, an amateur chess uh, viewer, right. it means that those strategies are not very robust. Right. In other words, you cannot think in terms of grand strategies and say, well, we don't need to memorize all this stuff. We just need to know a few broad principles, and the rest are all details. And... This, to me, is very interesting as a scientist because science is actually very robust. That's why it has survived so many centuries. Mm. Okay, What I mean is, uh, someone like Naveen or me, we don't go around remembering all kinds of stuff. That's not how we do things. Right? We remember a few broad principles from which everything follows. Right. And that's the key. Right. Okay. Now, it doesn't look like chess is like that. It looks like you really have to remember all these myriad variations and you carry them around in your head. And the, what you do in this situation so doesn't it's, really it's, it's follow. It's become from, reduced to a combinatorial kind of problem. And it you seems have, to be very, very combinatorial. Which means that it must be trivial. Well, I mean, G. H. Hardy thinks it is trivial. I mean, I, if you look at his book, The Mathematician's Apology, he makes the comment that chess is actually very trivial mathematics. You are a combinatorics person, uh, No, Naveen. but I don't agree that uh, is, is, even as a combinatorics, one will think that. Uh, because Mainly it is interesting chess is also because number of possibilities are too they large. They keep branching out. Yeah, it's too large compared to other games. Uh, number of possibilities are too large. That matters. No, but that wasn't really my point, Naveen. That, of course, the number of possibilities is what makes it interesting. The point that I was trying to make was that the strategies are not robust in the sense that if I make one tiny change, the subsequent strategy can be radically different. Completely different, yeah. So in that sense, it is not derivable from a few fundamental things. standard things, yeah. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is... Yeah. See, even neighborhood, uh, like, it depends on how you define. No? See, for example, chess, you can define, okay, if the two chess games are neighbor, if the first move made is same. So then you study that part. But as he is saying that if it is, it is uh, robust, if it is robustness is very different. No? Just one small change. No, but this is not about individual chess positions and where they are. The the entire chess game. Yeah, yeah. And obviously there have been so many games in the last many many decades and centuries. Yeah, so two oh. games you can call never so that their starting point is same. Can I offer an analogy? So their starting yeah. point is same. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yes, I'll offer an analogy. If you look at a sentence, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. What you had when you were looking at a continuation, you can start a sentence in a particular way. Right. right. Up to that point, uh, you can have a, a sentence which is a neighbor of another sentence because it changes one word. Right. But how that sentence continues can make those things completely different sentences. Right. At the same time, you can say something that is has almost the same meaning with completely different words. But you know, I think... Lang- so you can have a very similar chess game which develops uh, in, in terms of uh, spatial positions very differently, but is a very similar chess I game think what nonetheless. I, I think the effort here is, language is a little bit different because it, 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 it doesn't have a conclusion in some sense. But, you know, if, if you look at chess games, either the black wins oh. or the white wins or it's a draw, right? Oh, or, I, or maybe but, there are other things. You could, you could say the same thing about, in an, an analogical kind of way, about language to say that either there's meaning or it's absurd. But I don't want to go in that direction so much. But if you say there are, if you look at all the all the drawn games so far are they uh, i mean are the sub subclasses of them can be can they be thought of as neighbors and i'm thinking of this a little abstractly you know this is not just to say that you know you have rook here and there and you uh, go from no, this you, position uh, to that what you're saying is possible to study them but uh, exactly the point he was making that the uh, most of the science you have some common uh, some common 
parts fundamental principle fundamental idea you know which uh, a vision no a common fundamental vision from which things start in chess probably you cannot make that common fundamental vision that okay this is what you'll do so it is bit different from just doing science in that sense no of course yeah so what's the future where are we headed what's the future and what is an open question is there something worth understanding I think the, we talked a few minutes back about the change in the meaning of words, and uh, we talked about words being uh, neighbors. Perhaps one thing we should ask is: Are meanings neighbors? Uh, we can think about in our so own do, case. Do meanings sit in some kind of a spatial? Yeah, represent meanings in some abstract set. Right. Is the new meaning uh, a neighbor of the old meaning, or are there instances in linguistic? of a word getting acquiring a new meaning which is not in the least bit a neighbor Similar. of the previous me i don't know i think we should I, ask the actually, linguistics expert about I, that i don't know the french but i remember one example one guy who knew french he learned french and uh, he went to france sometime and then he went some years back so he was surprised that something which meant love earlier now st- has started meaning fuck earlier so right. it does it does change <laughs> where are we headed where are we headed emmanuel is there a way to uh, where are you on this question that uh, sagar has just raised is there a way of thinking of meaning as some kind of a does it have a spatial configuration meaning huh? not not words or sentences yeah. or phonemes or sounds or sibilants i, I, I I think yes I mean because w- when you think about it uh and 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 you see language uh as the result of a learning process right uh a learning process y- you can define either as a uh, discrete uh, a set of discrete states or a uh, um Obviously, Take language it. is a living animal, right? So yeah. meaning must be at least fluctuating around. The no, but that wasn't my question. My question was: Are there any examples that Emmanuel can give okay. of a new meaning which is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a neighbor of its previous meaning? So, can new meaning come to be? Can I mean, a new I, meaning come to be which, which is which not? Which would be a like name. a new concept, no. right, Sagar? You well, can give a, like I'll give an example from yeah. Telugu, which is my mother tongue. In Sanskrit, there's the word uchitam. Mm-hmm. Uchitam means appropriate in right. Sanskrit. Right. Now, over a period of time, in Telugu, contemporary Telugu, the same word has come to mean free, like gratis. Right. Like buy one, get one free. What, what was the original meaning? Appropriate. appropriate. Correct. Appropriate. That is the right thing to do in a given situation. Yeah. Now, to me... the two meanings seem to me completely disjointed and you say no no i know i mean that, that that i think those are classical examples of diffusion of of uh, of meaning where you start to uh um as a let's say very experienced speaker of the language you have a very exact idea of what the meaning of that word should be right and you will use it in very specific context now imagine somebody who is much younger and is starting to learn the language they will see it in context where there is much more variability on the meaning and actually when you're going when you would look at the uh the examples in which that word is used it may actually be very close to the meaning of uh, free and that's how it changes it's because uh when when you do make the maybe assumption f- maybe the word free has come to mean appropriate in a very gradual kind of way and that's how the yeah. word flip has happened and and and, and that's the thing context. if you model that process right as a bunch of speakers all with high dimensional meaning spaces and they t- try to transmit things to each other and you look at the variability of those vectors right so what is your vector for that word what is my vector for that word what is um uh navin's vector for that word all of us will have different vectors because all of us have different experiences and the younger we are the more inexperienced we are with the language the more variability 
there will be on it because there are less examples to draw from. And then and some then, error, then some bug ends up becoming a feature, even if it ends up being like used by many young people and it ends up yeah. coming into common usage. And when you look deeper into it, even in predictable ways, so you have the, this kind of meaning diffusion happens uh, very frequently uh, and, and, and things which are negative become positive and the other way around. That, that is uh, can yeah, that is be very mo- modeled as a Markov process? You think? Um, can it be modeled as a as a as a Markov process? Um, I think it would be very very in complicated. The sense that, in the sense that the current meaning of the word being free having no link to the original meaning in well, that sense, it, it would be more it's slightly different mm-hmm. in the following sense. Let's just take just these two meanings that I mentioned, appropriate, meaning correct, and free. and free in the sense of gratis. So so think about you assign weights. What does this word mean? Maybe a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. It meant with a probability bit of that. one, it meant <laughs> appropriate. And with probability zero, it meant gratis. So can you think about the evolution of the probabilities? But many other words well, had probability uh, zero. Right? Actually, there can be other reason also. Like I am remembering in Chennai, there is a bridge. Now, it's because the word was imported from another language, but it is name, but still. Uh, so word was some English guy's name. No, no, no. I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> Let me tell you correctly what it is. <laughs> it was called Ambattan Varavadi. <laughs> in Chennai, there was this place called Ambattan Varavadi. Okay. So Ambattan means barber. Someone gives sure, you hair. So now they started calling it barber. Barber's Bridge. Sure. So the, that's the... That but that's translation. No, no, no. no, no, no. In, see, in Tamil it got translated. Yeah, but yeah. interesting thing is that now in English also it is called, Barber's, called Barber's Bridge. bridge. <laughs> Barber's Bridge. <Sure. laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. So something so completely different. from English to Tamil back to English, English. with a different meaning. I, I'm, I'm, I forgot the most important part. It was originally called Hamilton's Bridge. Sure. Because the Tamilians couldn't say Hamilton. They converted it to Ambattan. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and then that Ambattan got retranslated back to English. So Hamilton has become barber. Barber. <laughs> A little bit like how your appropriate has become free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you.